0: Hiya, Duncan Green here, uh, snatching a bit of time away from the Olympics and the England-India Test match um, to bring you up to date with the latest posts on From Poverty to Power. Uh, so I'll, I'm going to keep this quick because I need to get back and watch the uh, 4x100. Um, so first was, the um, first post of the week was my uh, links I liked, which uh, seems to be quite popular. I basically summarised the best stuff I've seen on social media in the previous week. Um, and it's usually a combination of funnies and um, serious stuff. Um, the, the funny this this week was um, that uh, Nigel Farage, who doesn't appear on the blog very often, who was the sort of, I think, calling him the brains behind brec- Brexit. It's probably a bit too, uh, too kind, but anyway, one of the key figures in the Brexit campaign, um, has de- decided to slag off a national institution, the RNLI, the Royal National Lifeboat Institute, for having the temerity uh, to go out and save lives, which is kind of what it says in, the, uh, yeah, in its name, um, in particular to rescue migrants who are trying to cross the English Channel into Britain. Um, and Nigel Farage got all angry and started ranting about them. And um, it was great news for the RNLI because their fundraising absolutely went stellar. They recorded a 2,000% increase in donations in a single day um, 200,000 quid in one day alone. And uh, I just wondered whether, yeah, this might be a future career for Nigel Farage. He should offer his services to a range of good causes and say, I will slag you off uh, in return for a small percentage of the increased income. Um, I, I'm not sure. I think he probably doesn't need much extra money, but it's definitely an inter- interesting business model. Donald Trump had very similar effects. Whenever he slagged off an NGO or a, or a charity, they would suddenly experience a massive spike in their incomes. The second post of the week was uh, uh, reposting or uh, covering a very interesting piece in The Economist. I'm a big fan of The Economist. I struggle sometimes because it, it is consistent, and I suppose in some ways I am not. So, The Economist is a liberal institution and it's liberal on economics and liberal on politics. And what people like me and people who would broadly define themselves on the left and centre left tend to do is they like the individual political liberal view, you know, individual rights, you know, equality of treatment, you know, irrespective of sexuality, gender, whatever. They struggle with the economic uh, liberalism because that tends to mean laissez-faire, markets not state, uh, increased inequality. So anyway, uh, so that means that a lot of people in the NGOs, I think, don't read The Economist and they miss a lot. So when I see something really good in The Economist, I often uh, refer to it. And this one was The Economist has done a big excavation around an intriguing topic. Why do some areas have less destructive epidemics uh, in Covid than others? Why has Florida had fewer deaths per person than the American average, even though restrictions there have been looser for longer? So what researchers do in this situation is come up with a bunch of potential variables, construct a big equation and run a regression, and then see which one has the explanatory power. And so they've done a survey of those pieces of research. And it turns out that that this has little to do with health measures, climate or geography, but relates to economics, and in particular, economic inequality. So the huge literature on the determinants of COVID-19 infections and deaths finds that many widely assumed relationships do not always hold in the real world. Everyone knows that the older are most at risk, but Japan, where 28% of people are over the age of 65 compared with 9% globally, has seen remarkably few deaths so far. There is no consistent correlation between the toughness of lockdowns and cases or deaths. So a hunt is on and it's a hunt that is more as morbid as it is nerdy. I like the way the economist writes. Wonks are searching for less obvious variables that do more to explain variation in deaths. And so far the most powerful of them all is inequality. So then they they quote lots of bits of research and I went back and dug up their links to the original pieces. And so that people who want to go and look at the original sources can. Um, But then the question is, okay, so inequality seems to have a causal relationship with the differences between different places in terms of COVID deaths. What is the mechanism for that? Why does inequality have those effects? the, the economists suggest three potential causes. One is that economic inequality is associated very closely with health inequality. So when in a very unequal society, you have bigger inequalities between the healthy and the unhealthy. And when you have a high level of uh, a, a pre-existing poor health, that inc- greatly increases the numbers of COVID deaths. So that's one explanation. The second one's quite interesting. Politics, workplace relations workers in relatively egalitarian countries have more say, they have more bargaining power. And so therefore they can air and redress concerns with employers. Um, and that might help stop practices that, that, that aid the spread of COVID-19. So you've basically got better feedback loops in the workplace in those, in those places. Um, so that's another. And then the third factor relates to social capital. In areas of high inequality, people are more likely to say they distrust strangers or to have little interest in civic engagement. So weak social capital almost certainly reduces people's willingness to comply with virus control measures such as self-isolation or mask mandates for which the private incentives to obey are weak. So where there's high inequality, people don't trust each other. People don't see that think that they're all in it together. They, they think in terms of the haves and the have-nots and therefore people are less willing to make those really quite minor sacrifices that you make to have a good response to the pandemic. They're less willing to self-isolate. They're less willing to wear a mask. They're less willing to get vaccinated. So inequality through social capital produces this big explanatory power of what's going on with COVID. So I think all three of those sound quite plausible to me, and just very interesting to find them in The Economist, uh, uh, summed up there. Third post of the week was a uh, a piece of research which has been going on as part of our bigger emergent agency in a time of COVID project. So this is a project where we kicked it off about a, a, a year ago, and it's to uh, try and see what what is the effect of COVID in terms of social organization at grassroots level. And it's been a global conversation, been absolutely fascinating. We're writing up a research paper, summarizing the process and the findings, and that'll be out uh, for you to comment on in a few weeks, I hope. But um, this was a piece coming from the Philippines, so we funded a few countries, and uh, this was Oxfam Philippines got a bit of money from 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 this research grant from the from the LSE to do some research, and this is they've done a series of really quite good blogs, um, on um, uh, and co-published them with the Philippine Sociological Society. So the, the the movements they looked at were the community pantry movement, movements to support cycling because other forms of public transport have closed down, like. Um, Information Hub and advocacy network set up by grassroots political organizations and two social enterprises, Veggies for Good, which connects indigenous food producers with urban consumers and Sewing Hope, producing masks and other PPE. So a really nice spread of the kind of activities that have emerged at, the, at grassroots level in the Philippines in response to COVID. I thought the most interesting was the community pantries uh, um, one, uh, although I, I was also really interested in the biking one. Um, And what they did was that yeah, quite late on in the pandemic, this April, April 2021, um, somebody started a community pantry. A woman put out uh, a cart on her street um, and with only a bamboo cart and an instruction written on a piece of cardboard that says in Tagalog, give according to your ability, take according to your need. Um, she put up a. Her name is Non. I'm afraid I don't have a full name to hand. Her name is Non. She set up a community pantry in front of a former food park. First, she bought some vegetables from nearby vendors. She later stocked the pantry with other essentials such as alcohol, sanitizer, canned goods, and rice. And soon, people flocked to the pantry either to acquire the food that they need for the day or to donate. So a bit like the food banks, but at a, a sort of high turnover level. Um, but and then it just went viral. It took off. And what the the blog on uh, on this piece of work just looked at the results after five days, right? Just five days from this from the, uh, from, from Mrs. Non setting up this this uh, food cart, they identified forty four community pantries across the Philippines, and it went from there. And what I what was quite interesting about this was that they all forty four had some variation of that quote, which itself the 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 one about. Um, uh, give according to your ability, take according to your need, which itself is a kind of rewriting of a famous quote from Karl Marx. And their argument is that it was the quote that helped to go viral. People could see the logic here, you know, give according to your ability, take according to your need that's a kind of social message about how we should respond to COVID as a society, which is in stark contrast to many of the things that are going on under the current government. So it was a kind of implicit criticism of what's been going on elsewhere, and it really helped the movement take off. I thought that was very interesting. And then for the final post of the week, we went seriously nerdy, wonky. This was a guest post by a, a friend and colleague called Graham Teske. Graham uh, was a big fish at Diffid. I think he was uh, head of Africa. Uh, He then went off to to join the Australian uh, AUSAID, uh, the the Australian Aid Ministry, AUSAID, which later became known as WASAID because it was uh, wound up by the Australian government. Um, And he now uh, works on governance issues at uh, one of those big management consultants that takes large grants and runs aid programmes for the Australians and others. Um, So Graham uh, wanted to write a post uh, and sent it to me about these things called log frames. Now, if you're not in the aid business, you've probably never heard of them, but in the aid business, they are everywhere. They're the kind of the routine way that, especially big donors like DFID and Mozaid, um, fund projects. They, you set out your activities, your assumptions, you describe in one place how you aim to get from A to B and why you think you're gonna achieve that. And they've been around for decades um, and they've been getting a lot of stick recently. They've been getting a lot of criticism. So, um, <clears throat> hold on, I'm just getting back to the bit of uh, the Graham rates. Right, here we go. So Graham says, I am aware that log frames are out of fashion. References to the tyranny of the log frame abound. And I am afraid I have used that phrase. It's vertical determinism. It's lack of flexibility. Donors seem to have replaced log frames with things called program logics. And he gives an example below. And he's really not impressed. I think, he says, the program logics constitute a retrograde step. My main criticism is that they're, well, just not logical. Program logics contain no explanation of why contents at higher levels, you know, changing social norms, changing some big social issue, um, will be forthcoming. Sometimes a bunch of heroic assumptions may be listed somewhere in the diagram but with no interrogation regarding their political feasibility. This is a theory of action not a theory of change. A theory of change refers to an informed assessment of why some particular set of activities we think will lead to some higher level development goal. Why do we judge that relevant actors will make the changes assumed within the program? Simply giving actors the formal right or skill to do things differently is not the same as those actors actually using those rights or skills in practice. We call it a theory because it is both explanatory, why things are as they are and not like something else, and predictive, generating predictions that are capable of proof or falsification. And he says the basic requirement of any theory of change is that it must contain an if, then, because statement. So if we do this, then this will be achieved because, and this is where you go into the assumptions, we think this is how it works, this is is what we'll achieve, blah, blah, blah. And he concludes, I I would go as far as to suggest that a good log frame will tell you most of what you need to know about any initiative, its purpose, its theory of change, how to measure progress and success, the sources of the data, and how the because statements will be tested. And he then gets into some incredibly technical um, basic rules for log frames, And I thought I'd spare you those. Um, Do go and read it if you're interested. I didn't think they would make much sense in in spoken form. They they, they require some pretty sort of um, uh, concentrated effort to understand them. I mean, the thing I like about Graham is that, you know, he's got this huge understanding of development debates and issues, and he's remorselessly practical. He just, yeah, at the end of, we have all these big hand-wavy conversations. And at the end of it, he just says, okay, that was great. I really love that. What do I do differently? What does it mean for practitioners? Help us do our jobs better. And that to me is just as a, a very good focus uh, to have at the end of these conversations because they can get very abstract. So on that note of in praise of log frames, I'm gonna go back and watch the 4x100 relay and have a great weekend, everybody. I hope you enjoy the sport as much as I am. Bye.